It's a long way to Tipperary. It's a long way to go. It's a long way to Tipperary. To the sweetest girl I know. Hello, everyone, and welcome to History of the Great War, episode 59. During this episode, we will look at the German path to unleashing their U-boats, first in a perfectly legal commerce raiding campaign, and then onto a perfectly illegal unrestricted commerce raiding campaign, which they will then cancel just seven months after it started. Commerce raiding while at war was a long and storied profession. It dates all the way back to the earliest naval warfare, and by 1914 it had a well-documented set of rules that all sides were expected to obey. The key to all of these rules was to avoid the death of civilians whenever possible. Surface commerce raiders generally just had to find a merchant ship and tell it to surrender. Submarines, on the other hand, had to surface, notify the ship of its intentions, and then hope that the ship played along. This was because, unlike most of the commerce raiders during the war, the U-boats did not significantly outclass the commerce ships in armor and speed, and it had to give up its advantage in stealth when it surfaced. The British would take advantage of this situation during the first year of the war, and they are just as responsible for the German decision to start sinking everything in the North Sea as the Germans are. Obviously, things are a bit more complicated than those three sentences, which is why I will now spend the next 20 minutes discussing the topic. To understand why the Germans would eventually decide to declare unrestricted submarine warfare, it's important to understand at least part of the German economic situation before the war, especially as it relates to food. Germany had to import a portion of their food before the war, they just didn't produce enough domestically, and their biggest source was Russia. Now, obviously once the war started, Russia was off the table as a supplier, so Germany turned to their second largest exporter of food, and that was Hungary. Now, Hungary was on Germany's side for the war, but mobilization in the fall of 1914 had a very negative effect on the harvest. I think I just barely mentioned the harvest last year around the start of the war, but it was a serious problem for several countries during 1914. The war started just as the harvest was going to start, and the harvest in 1914 was still done, for the most part, through manual labor. What this meant was is that when so many men were drafted into the armies around Europe, there was a serious shortage of laborers which obviously had a negative effect on the harvest as a whole. With these two sources of food sort of off the table for Germany, the next best option was to import the supplies from overseas, but the British blockade made that difficult. The British were perfectly positioned to block all trade in and out of Germany, and they had the largest navy in the world to do it. Hell, blockading continental powers and protecting British trade were the two reasons the Royal Navy even existed at this point in history. The first step for the British to establish an effective blockade was to turn the North Sea into a war zone. This meant that all merchant ships could not go anywhere in the North Sea, or the British would capture or sink them unless they had explicit permission from the British government. The British demanded that any shipping destined for anywhere in the North Sea had to go through the English Channel, where the flow of the shipping could be easily controlled by British checkpoints. Germany, of course, protested this change to anybody that would listen, as we have discussed, but these protests did not instantly lead to them sinking any ship that moved. Instead, they would first focus on a campaign of restricted or legal targeting of British merchant ships. 
Early in November 1914, the discussion began in the halls of the Imperial Navy on how they could hit back at the British blockade. The goal would not be to actually attack the warships that were maintaining the blockade. The U-boats were already doing that, and making some headway, but not nearly enough. The goal was instead to institute a kind of counter-blockade of the British trade. The High Seas Fleet was ruled out as an option to perform this task, due to the danger that the ships were placed in every time they left port, and so all thoughts turned to the U-boats. The Chief of the Admiralty Staff, Hugo von Pohl, who we will talk about quite a lot today, began to prepare a document for presentation to the other German leaders, including the Kaiser. In this document, he would propose an unrestricted commerce raiding campaign to be executed by the U-boat fleet. He would put down some of his thoughts on why this was the bright course of action in these words, quote, As England is trying to destroy our trade, it is only fair if we retaliate by carrying on the campaign against her trade by all possible means. Further, as England completely disregards international law in her actions, there is not the least reason why we should exercise any restraint in our conduct of the war. We can wound England most seriously by injuring her trade. By means of the U-boats, we should be able to inflict the greatest injury. The British restrictions made the idea of using the U-boats to interrupt trade an easy sell to the German leaders. However, there was concern about the unrestricted nature of what was being proposed. Chancellor Bethman Holwig was concerned about the views of the neutral countries in such a campaign. The campaign would almost certainly result in the sinking of vessels from neutral countries. These countries might then enter the war against Germany. Because of these concerns, which were shared by the Kaiser, there were strict limits placed on the U-boat's actions. These limits made sure that everything was done within international law. So when the U-boats would start being sent out on patrol to interdict British vessels that were bound for the British Isles, they had a very strict set of rules for engagement. First, if the ships were found, they were subject to a search. If they were carrying wartime material, the ship could either be captured and brought to German ports, which was an extremely unlikely outcome, or they could be sank on the spot in one of three ways, by shelling, torpedoes, or the opening of the ship's seacocks. All of this would be done, of course, after the passengers on board had been conveyed to safety. The only time a merchant ship would be outright attacked was if it failed to yield when prompted by a U-boat. Even with all of these stringent restrictions placed on the U-boat captains, there was still concern about the reaction of neutral countries, and it would be a situation that would be constantly monitored by German leaders. Von Pohl continued to believe that Germany had to begin a fully unrestricted campaign soon if it was to make any real difference. Von Pohl would eventually be able to convince the Kaiser that it was a necessity after two events occurred that shifted the situation at sea. The first was actually a series of events that all involved the shady British anti-submarine tactics that I discussed last week. Tactics like arming merchant ships and disguising them as neutral ships, or the complicated schemes to coax U-boats into traps by turning normal fishing ships into warships, all of these instances just added to the feeling that Germany was trying to play by the rules imposed upon them, while the British were flagrantly flaunting them. The second event that tipped the scale was the Battle of Dogger Bank, and the defeat suffered there by the High Seas Fleet. The battle would keep the fleet in port for the rest of the year, 
and it also inflamed public opinion back home that something simply had to be done by Germany in the war at sea. The effects of Dogger Bank would end up being decisive, as it turned unrestricted warfare into the last option for Germany to try and take the initiative in the war at sea, instead of just setting in harbor for the duration. The results of the Battle of Dogger Bank brought around the important votes of the Kaiser and Admiral Tirpitz, but universal support remained elusive. Bethmann Holwig was still against the campaign for the same reasons as before, the neutrals, but he was finally convinced when he was promised that the duration of the campaign would be short, so even if the neutral countries hated it, they would only hate it for about six weeks, which was the expected time that it would take for the British to be forced to break the German blockade. There was also some very valid concerns about the upcoming campaign from high-ranking members of the German Navy. Their concerns were more in the practical and logistical realm than in the political. They believed that Germany just did not have enough U-boats to make it work. Due to casualties in the fleet of submarines that had started the war, and even factoring in new boats that had come online during the first six months, there was still only about 20 U-boats in February 1915. This group believed that it would be better to wait until the summer of 1915 before starting the campaign so that more U-boats could be launched. Most of the estimates at the time believed that it would require at least 200 U-boats before the ocean could be sufficiently closed around the British Isles to have the desired effect. While this number seems large, due to the size of the ocean, it probably would not have been enough they would never reach the production capacities that would have made getting that many U-boats operational at the same time, so it's sort of an academic argument. But in World War II, they probably got close to that number of operational U-boats in the Atlantic at one time, and even then, they were able to stop only a small fraction of Allied shipping. I have to be honest and say I'm not exactly positive on that World War II fact. It is actually deceptively difficult for me to find solid information about the exact number of German operational U-boats that were present at any given time during the war. Most of the information readily available deals with how much shipping they sank or how many boats were lost. So anyway, that's a big digression. But suffice to say, in 1915, Germany did not have even close to enough U-boats to close the Atlantic. The proclamation would be made on February 4th, though, that in unrestricted warfare was coming, and it was sent out to make sure that it was well publicized. Here are two quotes from the proclamation that I pulled from the U-Boat War 1914-1918. Quote, All the waters surrounding Great Britain and Ireland, and all English seas, are hereby declared to be a war area. From 18th February, all ships of the enemy mercantile marine in these waters will be destroyed. It will not always be possible to avoid danger to the crews and passengers thereon. The shipping route round the north of the Shetlands, in the east of the North Sea, and over a distance of 30 miles along the coast of the Netherlands, all will not be dangerous. These measures by the German government are worthy of note by neutral countries as countermeasure against English methods, which are contrary to international law, and they will help to bring neutral shipping into closer touch with Germany. The German government announces its intentions in good time so that both neutral and enemy shipping can take the necessary steps accordingly. End quote. Next, the proclamation would address what would happen to neutral ships. Quote, Neutral ships, too, will run a risk in the war zone, 
for in view of the misuse of neutral flags by the British government on January the 31st, and owing to the hazards of naval warfare, it may not always be possible to prevent the attacks meant for hostile ships from being directed against neutral ships. End quote. The orders that were then sent to the U-boat commanders left no doubt as to what the new rules of engagement were. Quote, Your first consideration is the safety of the U-boat. Consequently, rising to the surface in order to examine a ship must be avoided for the sake of the boat's safety. Aside from the danger of a possible surprise attack by enemy ships, because there is no guarantee that you are not dealing with an enemy ship even though it bears the distinguishing marks of a neutral. The fact that a steamer flies a neutral flag is no guarantee that it is really a neutral vessel. Its destruction would therefore be justified unless other attendant circumstances indicate neutrality. This proclamation and these orders would change the war drastically, and the British press lost no time in using it in the ever-ongoing propaganda war. The Times wrote that it represented, quote, further deeds of so desperate and abominable a character as to involve the lives of innocent neutrals, the sanctity of the American flag, and the safety of American shipping, end quote. After the orders were distributed to the fleet, the German leadership almost instantly began to get cold feet, similar to what happened during July 1914, when the Kaiser and Bethman Holwig waffled on the brink of war. This resulted in the change in dates for the start of the campaign. Originally, Germany had planned on starting the campaign on February 19th, giving the world two weeks' notice. However, on the 14th, a new set of instructions was sent to the U-boat commanders, with these words, U-boats are not to attack ships flying a neutral flag unless recognized with certainty to be enemies, end quote. which obviously completely contradicts the previous order. With this order, there also came news that the campaign as a whole was delayed until a date that was not yet determined. During this time, I'm sure von Pohl was going a bit batty trying to counteract all of this backpedaling from his colleagues. It was finally decided that, for realsies this time, the campaign would begin on February the 22nd. With this news to the U-boats came one final set of instructions. There were seven of them, and I will just take the time to read all seven. Quote, 1. The U-boat campaign against commerce is to be prosecuted with all possible vigor. 2. Hostile merchant ships are to be destroyed. 3. Neutral ships are to be spared. A neutral flag or funnel marks of neutral steamship lines are not to be regarded, however, as sufficient guarantee in themselves of neutral nationality. Nor does the possession of further distinguishing neutral marks furnish absolute certainty. The commander must take into account all accompanying circumstances that may enable him to recognize the nationality of the ship, examples, structure, place of registration, course, and general behavior. 4. Merchant ships with a neutral flag traveling in convoy are thereby proved neutral. 5. Hospital ships are to be spared. They may only be attacked when they are obviously being used to transport troops from England to France. 6. Ships belonging to the Belgian Relief Commission are likewise to be spared. 7. If in spite of the exercise of great care, mistakes should be made by the commander, he will not be held responsible. End quote. So in regards to neutral shipping, 
The commanders were asked to make a judgment call, but were specifically told that what the ship looked like should not be considered. But they were then told that they would not be held responsible for their mistakes. It would quickly become apparent to everyone that the Germans would have saved a lot of ink if they had just wrote one instruction in the final orders that read, quote, sink the ships, all of the ships. Oh, except for hospital and Belgian relief commission ships. Other than that, all of them. Because that's pretty much what happened. I have said the word neutral about 24 times in this podcast up to this point. And while all neutrals were important, there was one that was more important than all the others combined. The United States of America. The Germans hoped that the campaign would not start a fire among the American public while the British were trying to stoke that fire as fast as possible. Before they started any form of commerce raiding, Admiral Tirpitz used an interview with an American journalist to let the idea of unrestricted campaigns drop out there just, you know, on a whim. The response from the American public was disheartening for the Germans, to say the least. Unfortunately for Germany, Americans did not see the idea of unrestricted warfare in the same light as the British blockade. The American government was probably more sympathetic to the German argument than the public, though, and they had been protesting the British actions since the beginning of the war, particularly the British impersonating American ships. They mostly just firmly requested that the British stop doing that, but they could protest all they really wanted to, but technically it wasn't illegal, so firmly requesting was about all they could do. The British would then hear their request and then promptly remind all of their merchant ship captains that using false flags was a completely legal act, and they should really keep doing it. In fact, they gave definitive instructions that they should fly neutral flags, especially American flags, when approaching the English Channel. The British knew what was in their best interest, and all of this was, of course. Now, all of these actions were not well known during the war. For understandable reasons, the British did not brag about them. When it came to the unrestricted declaration, though, it was a very public campaign, and when the proclamation was released, President Woodrow Wilson would release a statement criticizing the new engagement rules. Quote, to declare or exercise a right to attack and destroy any vessel entering a prescribed area of the high seas without first certainly determining its belligerent nationality and the contraband character of its cargo would be an act unprecedented in naval warfare. End quote. This would be the official response of the president, even though many of his advisors exerted a lot of pressure on him to make it even stronger. The American public would not be as calm as their president, and there was an event that was about to make it a lot worse, a little event that involved a ship called the Lusitania. I'm not going to go into too much detail about the sinking of the Lusitania and its aftermath. All of that was covered back in episode 35. But here is just a quick refresher. Over a thousand people went down with the Lusitania when it sank after being hit by a torpedo shot by a U-boat. 128 of those deaths were Americans. Once this event happened, many of President Wilson's advisors wanted him to break all diplomatic relations with Germany, or even just outright declare war. Wilson, still hoping to keep the Americans out of the war, chose a more reserved response, and this would be part of his message. 
Quote, American citizens act within their indisputable rights in traveling wherever their legitimate business calls them upon the high seas, and exercise those rights in what should be the well-justified confidence that their lives will not be endangered by acts done in clear violation of universally acknowledged international obligations. End quote. This response made it clear that further incidents might have consequences, and it made the Kaiser and Bethman Holwig start to reconsider the entire campaign. The problem for both of these men was that the campaign, while hated everywhere else, was loved by the people of Germany, and calling it off, even if they tried to keep it a secret, would eventually be very unpopular with the Germans. So instead of calling it off, they began to make small changes to the campaign to try and prevent further incidents. The first change was to order the U-boats to only sink ships that the captain could tell the flag of, which was essentially just a reiteration of previous orders. The second order was to just straight up forbid the sinking of large passenger liners. These changes made the entire campaign a bit less of a threat to the British. Passenger liners had been requisitioned at the start of the war, and were used all the time for transporting military cargo. The second order was in response to yet another incident that occurred when the passenger liner Arabic was sunk with three Americans on board. This occurred in the middle of August, just as everything had calmed down in America after the Lusitania, and suddenly the public was back up in arms. Again, Wilson's advisors recommended breaking ties with Berlin, and again he would refuse to batter this pressure. He did tell the Secretary of State to tell the Germans that they had to completely disavow the sinking immediately. In The Great War at Sea, Lawrence Sondhaus claims that Lansing then proceeded to deliver the message to the German embassy, but he massaged the wording in a way that it sounded far more harsh than what Wilson had intended. The message that the Germans received was that if the unrestricted warfare campaign was not immediately stopped, the United States would immediately enter the war, which was not at all what Wilson had meant. With this message in mind, all of the German decision-makers met on August 26th to decide the fate of the campaign. Tirpitz and von Pohl dug in even harder that it was the correct course of action. Their reason was simply that if the U-boats were going to be at all effective, this was the only way. Bethman Holwig dug in on the other side of the argument, insisting that the campaign must end immediately instead of risking further animosity from the neutral nations. Bethman Holwig also threw out a little jab at the Navy, saying that they had guaranteed results in just six weeks, and here they were six months later. If it had not caused huge changes yet, how long would it take? A year? Three years? On the 27th, all U-boats were told to stay in port until the situation was decided. This may have been a move by von Pohl in protest to the orders not to sink passenger liners without warning them first, something that he believed endangered the U-boats far too much. The situation on the 27th went so far that Tirpitz submitted his resignation when it became clear that the campaign would not continue. This resignation was firmly rejected by the Kaiser, but it would mean the end of Tirpitz's real power within the German government. From then on, he was simply a figurehead, kept around for his popularity with the people. On September the 18th, the campaign would officially come to an end, and orders were sent to all captains to return to the previous rules of engagement. 
over the course of the seven months of unrestricted warfare, the U-boat boats had sunk around 800,000 tons of shipping, with the loss of 15 U-boats. While this number seems large, in reality it's not enough to make a huge difference in the war. This would be a problem in both world wars for Germany. When you hear the number of tons they were sinking with the U-boats, it seems like a huge deal, hundreds of thousands, even millions of tons. However, when you look at the total amount of shipping that was going in and out of the British Isles during the same time frames, it really only boils down to a tiny fraction of the total. The 800 tons hurt, sure, but it was nowhere near bringing the British to their knees, or enough to cause them to reconsider the blockade of Germany. In the end, the result of the seven months of unrestricted warfare in 1915 were pretty simple. Some ships were sank, America got a little more angry, and both sides learned some very valuable lessons on how best to use and to counter submarines. All of these lessons would be put to good use when the unrestricted submarine campaign made a comeback, in 1917. Thank you for listening this week, and I hope you'll join me next week in our last episode of the year, as we talk about the fate of the tiny Balkan country that started it all, Serbia. And now, a game of Commercial Chicken, brought to you by Progressive, where we see how long Flo can go without talking about insurance. Ready? Go. So, the the weather is just all over the place lately, right? One day it's hot, and the next day it's, uh, it's windy for a while. It's like, make up your mind already. Drivers who switch to Progressive can save big! Okay, you win. We can't help but save customers money. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates.